Welcome to the Modern British Political History Podcast. I'm your host, Harry White. So to give a bit of a sense of why I'm doing this podcast, I am a civil servant working in the Department for Education. I've been a civil servant for the last three years, roughly. And the history of governments and particularly recent governments is a real way to learn about how policy works, how government works, where it doesn't work, what policies have purchased in the long term, and what ones come and go or undone very quickly. So that's a bit on my interest in terms of my job, and I hope that gives the podcast a little bit of a an interesting angle. This podcast won't be talking about any governments from 2010 onwards based on the fact that I'm currently a civil servant working in government and it wouldn't be appropriate or impartial to make comments on anything from 2010 onwards. This podcast won't be me giving political commentary anyway. It's much more of a history podcast. The commentary that comes in will will be more what were the, the views of people at the time and thinking about what these governments achieved or didn't achieve from a, a neutral perspective. It is looking at governments from 1945 to 2010. That's what I take to be modern. And the other reason to not look at anything from 2010 onwards is that to me doesn't feel like history. It's too early to really say what the history of those governments are to make uh, broad comments on what they did or didn't achieve and really think about them in a, in a meaningful way. And that's another reason we won't be looking at anything from that period. What we're looking at, though, today is a book called Servants of the People by Andrew Rawnsley. And also, I'm taking a little bit of inspiration from a documentary called Blair and Brown, The New Labour Revolution, which is on the BBC. I definitely recommend both of these. And the focus of this podcast is on New Labour and that particular government. I will mainly be using the book Servants of the People and working through points from that. The other thing to say is it's not just from a civil servant perspective I'm coming from this at, it's from this perspective of being very interested in politics and history and having been a real enthusiast since probably the age of 16, definitely since doing A-level politics. That really got me hooked uh, into thinking about politics and history. And Again, we're really focusing on more modern British political history, but particularly with this one, I want to focus more on domestic rather than foreign policy. And the reason for that is, firstly, a lot has been talked about New Labour with its foreign policy agenda, particularly Iraq being the main one, but also Kosovo, Sierra Leone. I think it's original to think a bit about their domestic reforms. It's also just what I know, my own experience in the civil service is from working on domestic policy. So I have a lot more to say on that. With this podcast, I'm going to split it into segments so that I can show in the description of the podcast where I'm talking about things so people can skip to where they want to listen if they don't want to listen to the whole thing. The segments are going to be, firstly, why did New Labour win the election in 1997? 
because I think a lot of roots in their successes and their failures are in how they campaigned and their approach to trying to win power and having come from a period of opposition from 1979 all the way to 1997 a huge period in the wilderness which there's a great documentary if you type into youtube the labor party the wilderness years outlines that particular period this next segment's going to be on what are the most long-lasting things new labor did thinking about actually what policies have stuck and what haven't i think that's a very interesting thing from particularly from a civil servant perspective to think about why did new labor achieve what it did what were the more unpopular things it did or the failures even from its own criteria of success and then why didn't it achieve more which i think is a very interesting question because really when people tend to talk about new labor they talk about what it didn't do and the the where it didn't go far enough particularly on the left there's a feeling of there was so much more that those governments could have done firstly kicking things off so why did new labor win this election in 1997 there was a calculation of why Labour had lost previous elections that Blair, Gordon Brown and others did. And the few issues that they particularly were worried about, I think, were crime, defence, patriotism, social security. Why were they worried about those? Because the tabloids had a very effective run of denigrating Labour based on those issues. Labour was soft on crime. It wasn't strong enough on defence, for example, being pro-unilateral nuclear disarmament. It was a policy in 1983 that Michael Foote, the leader of the Labour Party at that time, pushed and most tabloids at the time would put that in the bucket of weak on defence. Patriotism as well, linking linking to that point on defence that Labour wasn't a patriotic party, that it's fashionable on the left to dislike uh, Britain and its history and its tradition and to be quite cynical about it. And then also social security, the idea that actually the welfare state had created a dependency culture and the Labour Party and the left wouldn't face up to that. And the tabloids were very effective at talking about that dependency culture. I think the thing about New Labour was it, it firstly managed to mitigate all those issues. It managed to look tough on crime, tough on the uh, causes of crime. It managed to have a more pro-defence, pro-NATO outlook it talked about new britain a different future for britain but still one that was patriotic and it also had a strong message on social security and getting people back to work also it had a modernizing message it, it managed to emphasize that idea of new labor and not just being beholden to labor traditions like the union movement which blair thought had held Labour back. If you look at their history, Blair, his family had conservative roots. I think his father was a conservative and he also had quite a middle class upbringing. He went to private school up in Scotland and whereas Gordon Brown had a more traditional Labour background. Combining those two was, was a big part of why New Labour won that kind of having some of the old ideas of Labour, but re revitalising it for a new, new era. And also having a really effective comms uh, strategy using modern media in a way that previously the Labour Party had been suspicious of modern media tactics, of PR, of television, and they'd been better used by Margaret Thatcher with um, Saatchi and Saatchi, for example, the PR company. 
but actually people like Peter Manderson wanted to take television and modern media and turn it from being Labour's denigrator and its Achilles heel to actually being its key ways of winning government. Some of the best things that New Labour did then, and and when I say best, my definition of that is things that now seen pretty much across the board as good things and also policies that weren't undone. So we could talk about how much funding went into the NHS, how much funding went into education, but a lot of that has been turned back. So it's hard to see it as a full success. Minimum wage, civil partnerships, smoking ban, upgrading the existing housing stock, a House of Lords reform and education reform are all areas the vast majority of people see those as part of modern Britain. And there's not many calls from governments, for example, the Conservative Party, to turn back any of those. UKIP wanted to overturn parts of the smoking ban, but that's never hugely caught on as an idea beyond that particular party. Looking at those things, they're all areas where it's systematic reform. It's areas where it's hard to undo. Essentially, also areas where you're winning the argument. So the minimum wage was strongly opposed when it was being first envisaged, both from the Conservative Party and the right, but also from some of the left. That argument was won. All the arguments on, well, if you have a minimum wage, it will drastically reduce or increase unemployment didn't come to fruition in in the way that was thought that it would really cause lots of companies, particularly smaller ones, to go bust. Also, it didn't seem to come to fruition. I think it's a sign of a real policy that's stuck when your enemies embrace it as well, similar to smoking ban, similar to some of the education reforms. So academization of schools, for example, is something that was taken up by Michael Gove and expanded in many ways. But that was something that was first started under Blair's party. But the key question with New Labour, I think, that people ask is why didn't it achieve more? It was a government that, when it was campaigning, promised a huge amount of change to make a new Britain, to revolutionise the way the public sector works, the economy. Words like revolution and radical were ones very much favoured by Blair. It raised expectations to heights that were almost undeliverable. So the first answer to the question of why did they not achieve more is remembering how much they did achieve and that they're a victim of their own uh, strong rhetoric on how much they could achieve in government. And there was naturally going to be a disappointment once they got into government because governing is challenging. Um, it's always easy to point out where things are wrong in a system, but harder to make them right. And also, once you make decisions in government, you immediately start to create divides. What people also tend to talk about is the friction between Blair and Brown and the splitting into camps of Blairites and Brownites, and that being a real issue for the government being able to achieve an, a huge amount because there was constant factional infighting spurred on, not just by the two main figures of Tony Blair and Brown, although there was a lot of discord between them based on Brown wanting to be leader of, of the government and feeling like he arguably was the senior of the two throughout much of their careers and then was usurped 
to the throne of being uh, prime minister by Tony Blair, even though he did concede to give to let Tony Blair stand to be Labour leader, and he did step down. People talk about the kind of personal resentment that Brown may have felt, but also with lots of figures around Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were key in creating that infight. So figures like Charlie Whelan, um, Peter Mandelson played a role, Alistair Campbell. I think actually though, the press focused a lot on those reasons and still does because that's the stuff of personality politics that the press tend to be more interested in than issues of ideology, policy differences, and other factors that might underlie why government struggles to achieve, or questions on just the actual machinery of government and challenges of getting things done and inertia. One thing I talk about, and this is going to be the meat of the podcast, is very much why did New Labour not achieve more, is in the first term, New Labour were quite uneasy about doing anything too radical because the Labour Party had not been in government for 18 years and had been consistently pasted by the Tories and also the tabloid press and felt that their position was quite tenuous, even though they'd achieved a massive majority. It didn't feel like that, I think, to Blair and Brown, it felt like at any moment um, they could lose their position and New Labour could be cast back into the wilderness like it had been so many times before. So they were less confident than you might think they would be given the majority they had and often played it safer than they needed to, given how much political capital they had accumulated. There was a lot of reliance on focus groups run by Philip Gould, Tony Blair's chief pollster, and arguably quite a lot of paranoia and angst about what the electorate were thinking at any given moment and whether their policies were going down well or not well. And there was a belief that Britain was fundamentally a conservative country. So their position was uncertain at best because the moment they leant towards more traditional Labour policies, they could become unpopular. The tabloids could turn against them. So definitely, I think that's one key reason. Another is about the differences between Blair and Graham, but less on the kind of personal animosity between the two but I think the fact that Blair actually did see Seth Brown as his senior in lots of ways the book sums the people talk about how Blair was mammothly dazzled by the cleverness and energy of Brown and throughout their early parts of their career when they shared a office in parliament together Brown was seen as the senior he taught Blair a great deal about politics particularly about the Labour Party its traditions and how to make speeches to the party and it wasn't expected that Blair would become leader before Brown. And there's an element of, I think, in government, Tony Blair still wasn't comfortable challenging Brown on issues and would defer to him, particularly on the economy and issues on that front, because Gordon Brown was intellectually stronger on, on financial matters. Also, that Blair was ultimately more of a conciliatory figure, someone who liked to fudge where he could and smooth over different cracks between different factions in his party or smooth over difficult policy issues. And that goes against what you need sometimes to drive forward real change in government and achieve, which is to take tricky decisions and to make enemies and to challenge vested interests. There was always seemed a nervousness by Blair to do that. Blair also let Gordon Brown lead on domestic policy because of that feeling of 
the experience that Gordon Brown had and the feeling that he had been Tony Blair's senior in many ways throughout the relationship. And that created quite a bit of tension that Brown would drive forward his domestic policy agenda and then there'd be conflict with Blair did not agree with it. And also, once you don't have the Prime Minister looking at these things closely, it's less likely that progress will be made. And Blair focused a great deal on foreign policy issues more so than, than domestic policy. I think part of the reason behind that is that Prime Minister, who are charismatic, often get very enamoured with talking about uh, foreign policy over domestic policy, perhaps because it's easier to get things done in some ways, strangely, on, on or feel like you're getting traction when communicating to other world leaders rather than getting mired in the complex machinery of your domestic government. It's easier for the Prime Minister to feel like he's personally making a difference and he has some less constraints, maybe less need to rely on his other ministers to get things done. And also there's a certain ego element to it that sometimes strutting on the world stage is more appealing than trying to get the trains to run on time. Philip Gould said that due to the Kosovo war, the people saw passion in Tony Blair for the war, which they didn't see demonstrating in his interest in domestic concerns. And that is what Tony Blair became quite driven by was this idea of humanitarian, ethical intervention in different countries and Sierra Leone, Kosovo and Iraq really um, has dominated our perceptions of Blair. Labour governments also tend to be quite effective when they are focusing more on the domestic, arguably. So you think about Clement Attlee and the NHS and the welfare states, that was a government that had a real uh, vision for what they wanted to do on the home front. Attlee ran a lot of domestic policy during the Second World War and Churchill was much more interested in foreign policy. And then that was reflected in panel interested the Labour government in 1945 was in trying to reconstruct Britain after the war. Then you've got Harold Wilson not taking us into Vietnam in the 60s and actually focusing more again on domestic concerns and not getting unhinged by uh, foreign policy, whereas Blair famously did get uh, entangled in Iraq and joined the Americans in a foreign policy adventure. There's also something about the fact that transport and green issues and the domestic issues in general were less interesting to Tony Blair and he gave them less of his attention. So when no number 10 did uh, actually take a real interest in, in these things, it tended to be focusing on vetoing things rather than putting things through and particularly things that would disadvantage what Tony Blair saw as his people, which were middle-income, middle-class voters rather than who Labour is traditionally seen to serve, which is the less well-off, the working class. So for example, number 10 vetoed policies that might anger motorists, say things like congestion charges, taxes on out-of-town shopping. Tony Blair had a real dedication to that particular middle-class electorate and preserved a lot of their perks that they had. So for example, suburban middle classes often had tax perks, things like mortgage tax relief. Also that government, because they were keen not to offend middle class sentiments, there was what the book calls the habitual weakness was to make a gesture rather than to take action. This was an ecology of government unfriendly to policies which might make a difference in the long term, but which carried risk of immediate term controversy. 
So constantly thinking about the headlines and what might look bad. And if you take that attitude, it's unlikely you're going to make real long-term definitive policies that um, will stick and make a real difference. Linking to the connection to the middle classes was also connection to business that New Labour had and it being arguably a little bit overawed by business. Um, the CBLI, for example, the Confederation for British Industry, are said to be have been surprised by how smitten there was and New Labour in general with business and how reluctant to challenge business. A lot of that comes from Blair's background in that he was a lawyer and had a lot of friendships with people in corporate law and business. And they were his kind of people, he admits, that he enjoyed that kind of aspirational, get up and go, entrepreneurial spirit that they had and was therefore unwilling to disadvantage them in policymaking. This time I also said that he himself was someone who, if he hadn't been a public servant, might have gone into business himself. And that was an appeal to him. Also tried to appease tabloids I've mentioned. So there was understanding of the Labour in the past had faced a lot of criticism from tabloids and there was a desire to turn them into allies rather than enemies. And I think this explains the number of special advisors and communication advisors the new Labour government hired. There was a lot of criticism put on, you know, how much spin there was, how many new spads were appointed, but it's not really surprising if a government or the parties felt that they'd struggled with the media, that they then went um, in that direction of overcorrecting. But arguably this did lead to a politics more of gestures and signals than, than hard delivery and more interested in, in the headlines and the press than the machinery of government. For example, there's policies like trying to give on-the-spot fines to people who are drunk um, out in public which were not deliverable, but were touted by Blair and others to get the positive headlines about um, attacking antisocial behaviour. Also, in terms of why did New Labour not achieve more, they achieved a huge amount in terms of redistribution. And a lot of this, though, was done by stealth. So through tax credits for, for working people and families, Gordon Brown did a lot of this work and brought millions of children out of the poverty. But they were reluctant to win the arguments on this, which which meant that they couldn't go further. They wouldn't talk about these successes as much as they would talk about efforts on crime or the NHS or other issues. And Brown also thought funding was a way of tackling a great deal of issues. But a lot of that funding was undone by future governments. And the reason it was undone was because they hadn't really made the argument for why they were putting more funding into helping less well-off families or reducing child poverty. And if you don't win that argument, like, for example, the argument on the minimum wage was made and won, then your policy is likely to be undone in future governments. Also, not being able to get out the most out of the government machinery. As someone who's a civil servant, it's a slow-working machine government but if you know how to make it work it can be very effective at the start of the new labor government they had a huge array of targets so over six thousand at one count which the book says is more than stalin's targets and if everything's a target nothing is a target there was a, a real control freakery element of setting lots of targets but then making them 
meaningless because what are you focusing on? Tony own personality, his political type, was less suited to working through the intricacies of government and was more charismatic and had the ability to say the right things, make policy sound effective, but getting into the detail and thinking about the systems and interchange was less on his radar, perhaps it became more so in his last term. But by that point, he'd lost a lot of political capital and said that he would um, not be prime minister for much longer. So I uh, struggled to uh, follow through on some of the structural changes then that he actually was mature enough to think about and advocate for. His strengths, the book says, mainly um, relied on reading political moods, not reconfiguring structures. And Michael Howard, the Conservative Party leader, that to make real change, you have to be prepared to do boring, and that Blair wasn't really prepared to do that. And then a key reason, more long-term, why New Labour didn't achieve as much is about legacy, that any project or political movement needs to be sustained beyond just the lifetime of the immediate people who you inspired it. So if you think about New Labour, it really was three key people, Brown, Blair and Peter Manderson, who embodied what New Labour was all about. Peter Manderson talks about in his book that New Labour was more of a club than a movement and there was no one really to take forward its legacy. Peter Manderson's book's called The Third Man. And Blair and Gordon Brown had a project which they very much built from the centre. It was a small group coming up with the ideas, intimately working together, and then slowly gaining traction within the white Labour Party. There's not a new Labourite faction in the same way as there is a Thatcherite faction in this Conservative Party. On proportional representation, which I think is a key area where... <laughs> progressives would have hoped that New Labour would have made some progress. Blair, when he was coming to power, had a agreed during the campaign that if he won, he would form a, a government, including some members of the Liberal Democrats, and then would offer a referendum of proportional representation. And had been talking about that with the Lib Dem leader, Paddy Ashdown. But then once New Labour won, and won so stratospherically and impressively, Blair moved away from that idea, was became less keen on it, and essentially strung Harry Ashdown and led Dems along whether or not that he would follow through with having a referendum or having Liberal Democrat MPs in his cabinet. I think part of this is self-interest. It must have become clear to Blair that actually it was possible for Labour to win and win big under the current system, and if they changed it to be more proportional, then they would have less seats and the Lib Dems would have more as with other parties. So it wasn't actually any more in their interest. And there was certainly an element of controlling from the centre and perhaps more presidential style from there. So proportional representation doesn't marry up well to that. Countries that are under that voting system have much more consensual style governments involving alliances rather than one party holding the reins of power. The last one is about removal of hereditary peers and general reform in the House of Lords, which went some of the way to achieving what was promised in Blair's manifesto in that he said he'd remove all the hereditary peers. But actually, when he enacted it, they struck a deal, essentially, 
in the Lords that they would take away 650. And the way that would be done was through votes of the current heirs. They would vote which of them would stay on and which would no longer be in the House of Lords. You could say this was pragmatic politics and Blair realised that it would take a huge amount of effort to get all of the hereditary peers removed and this step of getting 650 was one with surprisingly little difficulty. But on the other hand, again, there was a lot of capital politically that Tony Blair had from his election victory, which was a complete landslide. If he'd wanted to actually get rid of all the hereditary peers, it might have cost some time political capital might have made some enemies, but would have been possible. But he just was not willing to spend those resources and was also very nervous about making enemies. To wrap things up, so what? where does that leave us on the new Labour government? They clearly did achieve a lot more than they're given credit for in many ways, but I think a lot of that has been a victim of high expectations and what people thought they would achieve and the amount of rhetoric and spin meant that inevitably people were going to be a bit disappointed, particularly those who were further left than the New Labour project. And then also Iraq really undermined the project and reputation, particularly of Blair, but also of New Labour in general. What would be positive and I think is happening now is a reevaluation of putting those things aside. Iraq putting aside spin and the personality politics of New Labour, how much did it achieve? What is its legacy? What did last? And when you look at the list, it's quite a substantial one. Thank you. That's everything for today. We'll pick up maybe a bit more about the New Labour government in the next podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you.